The Old Testament reading today will be Genesis 1, 1 through 3 and also 2, 1 through 3. Genesis 1, 1 through 3 and 2, 1 through 3. And then we will look also at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 for the New Testament reading. Let's give our attention now to God's most holy word. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now look at verse chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Now let us go to the New Testament reading, which is John chapter 1, and we will look at verses 1 through 5. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Of course, the Word here is in reference to the Christ, the second person of the triune God come in the flesh. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1 says. It is our sermon text for today, just that one verse. And I cannot think of a more important verse in all the Bible than Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, some might take issue with what I've just said. I, I can hear them actually replying in this way. But what about those passages that reveal Christ to us? Are they not more important than Genesis 1.1, which merely tells us of the beginning of creation? What about John 3.16, for example, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Or what about John 14.6, where Christ Himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, ever, no one comes to the Father except through Me. Are these verses not more important than Genesis 1.1. These verses do, after all, reveal the way of salvation to sinners, whereas Genesis 1.1 only reveals to us the beginning of God's creation. I think this way of thinking does illustrate the sad trend within the Christian church today, which is to reduce everything down to what we might call gospel essentials. It seems that pastors and those to whom they preach have come to believe that the only things that really matter are those things that have some direct reference to Christ and to the cross of Christ and to the salvation that is found in Him. It's as if when they read Paul's words, when he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, they imagine that Paul devoted himself only to speaking to the subject of the crucifixion of Jesus. But I wonder, have you read the writings of Paul? Have you read Romans, for example? Have you read 
the book of Acts and consider the preaching of Paul that is recorded there clearly when we take these things into consideration. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians saying, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then later to the Colossians, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He did not mean that the only doctrine that matters, the only doctrine that he taught, was that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the grave, and that salvation is available through faith in Him. That was not Paul's practice. But rather, he did teach and preach many other things. Indeed, for Paul, everything does come to center upon Christ. Indeed, Christ is the central figure or hero of the story of redemption. Indeed, it was at the cross of Christ that atonement was made for sin, It was there that our salvation was accomplished, and for this reason, Christ must always be proclaimed. Everything must come to focus upon Him ultimately. We must preach Christ crucified, risen, and ascended, and without that message, there is no gospel at all. But friends, do you see that Christ cannot be proclaimed intelligibly unless we tell the rest of the story, the story of creation, the story of the fall? and the unfolding of God's redemption, which does eventually come to culminate in Christ crucified and risen. To say, Jesus died for sin, rose and ascended to the Father's right hand, will make no sense at all to the one who is ignorant of the biblical account of creation, of the account of the fall, and of the unfolding of God's redemption. I want you to notice how the gospel, notice this is the gospel of John, which does eventually come to say, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Notice how that gospel begins. It begins with what three words? In the beginning. Notice how the genealogy of Jesus found in Luke's gospel does take us back, first of all, to Adam. Notice how the genealogy in Matthew's gospel takes us back to Abraham. Not all the way to Adam, for he's writing... Uh, to Jews primarily, but to Abraham, way back into the, to the story of, of God's redemptive activity in the world. The point is that even the Gospels themselves, the four of them that we find in the New Testament, do not begin with the story of Christ crucified and risen, but they do first of all tell something of the back story. They reach into the Old Testament and even to the creation account itself in order to set the stage so that the good news of Christ crucified, risen, and ascended might be comprehended. We have to tell the whole story if the good news is to actually sound like good news. Friends, do you understand how difficult, difficult it would be for someone who has no idea of what the Scriptures say regarding God, His creation, the fall of man into sin, to understand what you mean when you say, believe upon Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? What sin, they're thinking. Why do I need to be forgiven? Who do I need to be forgiven by? And what does this Jesus Christ have to do with any of this? These are the kinds of questions that are rattling around in their head when you preach this bare-bones gospel message to them. That is, unless they have had some encounter with the God of the Holy Scriptures previously. I was sitting in a coffee shop doing some reading Well, I was waiting to pick up my kids from practice. And there was a young man that was standing a few feet from me. It's a crowded place. And all of a sudden, another young man approached him and rather awkwardly and abruptly uttered these words, and I kid you not, they were these words exactly. Hey, I just wanted you to know 
that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. There was a little awkward interaction between the two of them. Uh, the Christian prayed with the young man and then everyone went their way. Uh, the, the evangelist rejoined his group of friends, rather proud of what he had just done. That was apparent. And the evangelized one left the, the restaurant there with, with his drink. And I was left to sit there and to ponder what I had just witnessed. A number of things came to mind. First, I thought, well, at least this young Christian has a zeal for telling others about Christ, even though it be a zeal, in my opinion, not according to knowledge, Romans 10, 2. Secondly, I thought, who knows how the Lord will use that encounter in the life of that young man who was evangelized. God is certainly able to use even our stumbling and stammering words to bring about good. But that is where my charitableness reached its limits. In fact, I went to the car to grab a business card so that I could approach that young evangelist with a question. And my question was going to be this. Was that the gospel of Jesus Christ that you proclaimed to that young man when you said Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And if his response was yes, then I was going to give him my card along with a homework assignment. And I was going to say, would you please search the scriptures and find for me one example where the gospel is proclaimed like that in the New Testament or in the Old. And once you find one example, give me a call. Or if you cannot find it, give me a call. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Um, he left before I could get back with my, my business card. Maybe it was for the best. But then I was left with this thought. I wonder how much confusion that presentation of the so-called gospel, which was not the gospel, brought to the young man who heard it. It is true the Lord might use it for good, but it might also have brought much confusion. I suppose that depends on how much of a biblical worldview that young man already possessed. If he knew nothing of all, at all of the scriptural account of creation, fall, and redemption, then I'm afraid that the remark, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, would have sounded like utter nonsense. Worse yet, it probably helped to solidify ideas that are in fact contrary to the gospel. Namely, the idea that he is by nature lovely and in a right relationship with God. And that Jesus' main concern is that he have a so-called wonderful life. Do you understand my concern about this? The gospel is not preached in this way anywhere in the pages of Holy Scripture. Instead, the gospel is something that starts with bad news. It's not that you're in a right relationship with God, that Jesus loves you. You're a child of wrath because of your sin. But here is the good news. God has provided a Redeemer. Repent of your sins. Look to Him for life eternal. When I came to the end of my pondering, my thought was this. Oh, that we would have the kind of zeal to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that is lost and dying that this young man had. I do wish that would be true of us. I hope that it is. That we would have that same kind of zeal as a church. But may it never be a false gospel, one that is without law, one that does not first tell the bad news, which makes the good news good. Indeed, it would be entirely appropriate to say to the Christian, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Wouldn't that be an appropriate thing to say to the one who is in Christ? Yes, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But to say this to those not in Christ is a lie. The true gospel, the one that is found in the pages of Holy Scripture and on the lips of Christ and His apostles is the one that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We have sinned against Him and are under His curse and are by nature children of wrath who deserve only to be judged by Him. 
But God in His mercy has provided a Redeemer. Christ Jesus is His name. He suffered and died for the sins of His people. Repent, believe upon Him, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, for a right relationship with God, and for life everlasting. That is the gospel that we find on the lips of Christ and the apostles in the New Testament. That is the one we should have zeal to preach. And I pray that we would. I wonder if you're offended by what I'm saying. I don't know that many of you would be. Some might. If you are, then I would ask you to do this. Prove me wrong. Search the Scriptures and prove me wrong. Search the Scriptures and show me where those not in Christ are ever comforted concerning their present state. Never are they comforted, but they're always warned. And after being warned, then the good news of Jesus the Christ is then held before them and freely offered. And in this way, law and gospel do sweetly comply. They work together, law and gospel. The law reveals our sin and misery. The gospel is the remedy held forth. When I say, therefore, that I cannot think of a more important verse in all the Bible than Genesis 1.1, I do not mean that it is more important than those verses that reveal so explicitly the good news of Christ crucified and risen and the forgiveness of sins that is found in Him. Instead, I mean that Genesis 1.1 is, in a very real sense, the beginning of that gospel message. It is the foundation of it. It is the gateway through which we must pass in order to understand why it is that we need Christ crucified and risen. It is the, the foundation of the gospel. It is the beginning of it. It is the, the, the thing that must be known in order for us to understand why Christ is the only mediator between God and man and that salvation is found in Him and in Him alone. The same can be said of the whole of Genesis chapters 1 through 3, by the way. Uh, these chapters truly set the stage. They prepare us for the story of redemption that will unfold from there and the rest of the book of Genesis, the rest of the Old Testament, and on into the New. They prepare us for the story of redemption by first establishing the fact of creation and of man's fall into sin. To get Genesis 1-1 wrong, or to get Genesis chapters 1-3 through 3 wrong, is to get everything wrong. You cannot make sense of the Bible without understanding these foundational texts. And so let us carefully consider these chapters, brothers and sisters, and let us begin with a careful consideration of verse 1 of chapter 1, which simply states, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Truly, I cannot think of a more important verse in all the Bible than this one. And so let us take this verse in four parts. First, we will consider the phrase, in the beginning. Next, we will consider the word, God. After that, we will examine the word, created. And then we lastly will ponder the phrase, the heavens and the earth. I hope that you would agree that the phrase, in the beginning, though simple in some respects, is ultimately very deep and profound and highly significant. Considered most basically, the phrase, in the beginning, simply serves to introduce what will follow in the narrative of Genesis 1, namely the account of God's creating of all things seen and unseen out of nothing in the space of six days and all very good. When did God do this, we might ask, and the simple answer to that question is, He did it in the beginning. But, Think of the deep and profound implications of the phrase, in the beginning. The scriptures are here asserting that heaven had a beginning, that earth had a beginning, and that time as we know it had a beginning. Stated a little bit differently, the scriptures are asserting that there was a time, if we can call it that, where there was no heavenly realm, no earthly realm, and no time. 
then there was only God existing in all eternity. In other words, the phrase in the beginning does not only mark the moment in time in which God begins His work of creation to take us forward from there, but it does also take the mind from the moment of creation and casts it backwards, if you will, into all eternity. And I wonder if you could take some time this afternoon to sit and to try to imagine eternity. And know when we speak of eternity, we are not speaking of a succession of minutes, hours, days, and years projected without end into the past and into the future. Instead, we are saying that there was a time, if we may call it that, when there was no time at all. Prior to the act of creation, there was only God. And our God is not bound by time. He does not experience the succession of moments as we do, but exists outside of time, for He is the creator of time. He does interact with us in time, but He is not bound by it as we are. And prior to the act of creation, there was no space either. There existed no heavenly realm, nor was there an earthly realm, but there was only God. And so sit this afternoon and just begin to think about that and try to understand it. And I'm sure of it, you will find that you will hit up against a wall. You will reach a limit. You'll be unable to wrap your mind around these things. I really do doubt that you'll make it very far in your contemplation of eternity, but I think this is very good for us. It is a humble reminder that we are created beings and not the creator of all things. Everything that we know in this world has a beginning and it has an end. Everything that we experience happens in time and also in space. Our minds are not capable of grasping eternity. We know what cannot be said when speaking of eternity. We say there was no time nor was there space but only God. But it is hard for us to know what we ought to say to describe it positively. You can feel the mind, I think, reaching its limits when you contemplate these deep and profound things. The phrase, in the beginning, is profound in its simplicity. It keeps us from projecting time and space back into eternity. And though it is impossible for us to fully comprehend God in eternity apart from time and space... We know that we must confess it is true for the scriptures simply say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This we can say. This we can kind of understand. This we can confess as true. And so do you see that in Genesis 1.1, materialism is denied. Materialism is that philosophy which asserts that the material world itself is eternal. I think it's actually a philosophy that is quite prevalent today. We treat this world and and the stuff of this world as if it is ultimate, as if it was always here and will have no end, even though science at the same time ironically confesses that it must have had a beginning. And you see that in Genesis 1.1, pantheism is also denied. Pantheism asserts that the physical world and God are somehow one. The physical world is, according to pantheism, a kind of manifestation of God and inextricably so. And since God is eternal, so too creation must be eternal. God in His essence has always existed. Therefore, some physical manifestation of Him as we know it in the physical world must have existed with Him for all eternity. Uh, To the pantheists, both God and the physical world are eternal, for they are joined together as one. Stated positively, Genesis 1.1 establishes the distinction between God the Creator and His creation. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the text says. There was a time when heaven and earth were not, and only God was. And this God did in the beginning speak the heavenly realm and the earthly realm into existence. Friends, many theological errors arise out of a fundamental failure to maintain the creator-creature distinction that is so clearly established in Genesis 1.1. We, in our ignorance and in our sin, are prone to make God in our own image. We tend to think thoughts of God that are too low. We tend to assume that He is somehow like us. Now it is true that God did make man in His own image, and the meaning of this will be discussed at length in the weeks to come. But one thing that is surely true, one thing that it surely does not mean, is that God and man are of the are the same, or that they are alike in every way. We are not of the same species. God is divine, and we are human. God is a most pure spirit. We consist of body and soul. God is the creator, and everything else that does exist is not God, but is His creation. This distinction between creator and creature is firmly established in Genesis 1.1, and it must forever be remembered. We must bring it along with us as we do consider uh, the rest of Scripture. Does God interact with His creation? Of course He does, but He is distinct from it. Is God omnipresent? Is He present in all places at all times? Surely He is, but He is not one with nature, as the pantheist says. God, in the beginning, did create the heavenly and the earthly world, which means that He is distinct from them, though He be everywhere present within them. And does the created world reveal something of the glory of God? Of course it does. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth, the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Psalm 19, 1-3. The created world reveals something of the glory of God uh, to us. So some things about God can certainly be known through His creation, but He is not one with the created world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what should we say about the word God? I'm sure you could understand what I mean when I say that we could spend a very, very long time unpacking all of the meaning that is contained within this one little word, God, in Genesis 1.1. What is God? What are His characteristics or attributes? Can He be fully known by us that is exhaustively known? If no, then can He be truly known by us? And how can we know Him? And what is God doing in this world? These are the kinds of questions that we might ask when we come to the word God in the first verse of the Holy Bible. Of course, the answers to these questions are not found here in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Genesis, but they are found in the rest of the Holy Scriptures and how important it is for us to read the whole of God's Word to understand who it is that our God is, what His essence is, what His attributes are like. I would like to read from our confession of faith. I don't do this very often. Sometimes I will quote it. Here I want to quote it extensively. I'm going to read chapter 2 of the Second London Confession. The title of it is Of God and the Holy Trinity. And I'm going to use our confession here because I think it is the, the best way to, in succinct fashion, give you some sense of who this God is that is simply introduced to us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Our confession 
puts it beautifully, and it does also put it succinctly. Paragraph 1 of chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of Himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, that means unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's a beautiful introductory paragraph, isn't it? Paragraph 2. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, is alone in and unto Himself all sufficient. Did God need you in order to be sufficient? No, but He is in and of Himself all sufficient. Not standing in need of any creature which He hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom all are all things. And He hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever Himself pleaseth. In His sight all things are open and manifest. To Him all things are clear. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to Him contingent or uncertain, He is most holy in all His counsels, in all His works, and in all His commands. To Him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever He is further pleased to require of them. Paragraph 3 does begin to teach the doctrine of the Trinity when it says, In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, Therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. What a beautiful statement, brothers and sisters. I'm sure you were unable to digest all of that. But I wanted to say it in the beginning. God, who is this God? This is our God. And where does this teaching come from? But the whole of Scripture The whole of Scripture reveals these things to us. This is the God, the triune God, the infinite and eternal God, who did in the beginning create the heavens and the earth. This is the God of the Bible, who is introduced to us here in Genesis 1-1 with the words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So much could be said, but for now let me make two fundamental observations. First of all, notice that the name for God used here in Genesis 1-1 is in the Hebrew Elohim. Elohim is a rather generic name for God. It, it means He who is to be feared and the one who is full of majesty. 
The name Elohim is in the plural, it should be noticed. And though some believe this points to the fact that the one true God is triune, I do agree with Gerhardus Voss and many others uh, that the plural form is a plural of majesty. Uh, the God is, that God is triune obviously cannot be denied. And there are indeed indicators, even in Genesis 1, that the one true God is triune. I'm just not convinced that the plural of Elohim points to it. It was not uncommon in the Hebrew language nor in other ancient languages to, to give the plural for, for, for something that, that needed to be communicated as being infinitely majestic. Majestic. That was not well stated, but I think you know what I mean. The name Elohim certainly fits the subject matter of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. Here God is described as the Almighty God of who did speak the heavens and the earth into existence by the word of His power. Indeed, He is to be feared, and indeed, He is full of majesty. He is God Most High. That is the thing that is communicated by the name Elohim, and that is the thing being communicated here in this first chapter of Genesis. The thing to note is that Elohim is the name that is used for God throughout 1-1 through 2-3. But when we come to 2-4, something happens the name used for God is Yahweh, Elohim. And it is used throughout the text on into chapter 3 also. You don't have to know Hebrew to notice that something changes in the text at that point. In 1, 1 through 2, 3, God is called God in the English. But in 2, 4 and following, God is called the Lord God, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. The Lord God, or in the Hebrew, Yahweh Elohim. And that name for God does fit that context. The name Yahweh is the covenantal name for God. It is the name for God that is used when God in covenant with man is the thing being emphasized. The name signifies God's self-existence, His immutability, or the fact that He does not change, which should give us comfort. If we are in covenant with God, it would be terrible for Him to be a God that changes always. But He is the self-existent, immutable, and faithful God. That is what the name Yahweh signifies. And when we come to Genesis 2, 4 and following, we'll see that it is an account of creation, not a different one from the one in chapter 1, but one that hones in upon God forming man and entering into a covenantal relationship with Him. And so the name used for God there is fitting, Yahweh Elohim. Secondly, notice that in Genesis 1, 1 and following, it is God alone who creates. It is God alone who creates. Uh, True, the name Elohim is in the plural, but this is not a reference to a plurality of gods, but emphasizes God's majesty, as I've already said. For all of the verbs that correspond to the name Elohim are in the singular, indicating that it is the one true God who did make the heavens and the earth in the beginning. And it is true that when we come to the creation of man, we will hear God say, let us make man in our image. But here we have a reference not to a plurality of gods, but to the plurality that does exist within the Godhead. This God is triune. Brothers and sisters, are there more gods than one? What do we teach our children to say? There is but one only, the living and true God. And how many persons are there in the Godhead? We teach our children to answer in this way. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. In Isaiah 46, 9, God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 
There is one God who did in the beginning create the heavens and the earth. There is no indication at all that there was any strife between one God and another in order to bring about the creation. There was no struggle here. There were no competing forces prior to the beginning of time, but only God, and He did effortlessly bring into existence all things that are not God. There was no dualistic thing going on where there was a battle between forces of light and forces of darkness or any such thing, but just God, God alone, and He did will to bring all that is not God into existence. Let us now consider briefly the word created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Here I simply wish to draw your attention to the fact that in Genesis 1-1, we find the doctrine of absolute creation asserted. In the beginning, God created the heavenly and earthly realm and the earth, uh, and He did so, excuse me, out of nothing. He did so out of nothing. Here is the relationship between verses 1, 2, and 3 and what follows. This is important. Please pay attention. Verse 1 states that in the beginning God created the heavenly realm and the earthly realm out of nothing. It is the doctrine of primary or absolute creation that is asserted. What did God do in the beginning? He brought these realms into existence, the realm of heaven and the realm of earth. Now what does verse 2 say? It indicates that at first the earthly realm, notice what we are focusing on, not the two things but only the one, the earthly realm was in this state. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So in the beginning, God created the realm of heaven and then the realm of earth. Now everything moves away from the realm of heaven, not to focus on that, but to the realm of earth. And how did it exist at the beginning of time, after the act of absolute or primary creation? It was in a void and dark state. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then in verse 3 and following, we have a description of God bringing the earthly realm into form, bringing it into a form that would be suitable for human habitation. The six days of creation described in verses 3 and following might be called secondary or formative creation, for there God is described as bringing the primary and absolute creation that was first stated in verse 1 into a form where man can live. Take the creation of man, for example. God created man directly, but man was formed out of the dust of the earth. Woman, likewise, was created directly by God, but was formed out of man The dry land and oceans were formed by God separating them one from the other. And so we must make a distinction between primary absolute creation, Genesis 1-1, the chaotic state, if we may call it that, I'm not sure chaotic is the best word, but the the, the empty and void state, uh, the dark state that was there, and then the forming of the earth into a realm suitable for man's habitation Let us lastly consider the words heaven and earth, found at the conclusion of verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If you've been listening closely, you'll be able to anticipate what I'm about to say here. The word heavens refers in verse 1, not to the heavens as in the place where the sun, moon, and stars reside, the visible heavens, but to the heavenly realm 
where the glory of God is shown forth in a most pronounced way and where the angels of God reside who worship and serve Him day and night. That is what heavens refers to in Genesis 1.1. That heavenly realm, what Paul calls the third heaven, is not eternal, but was created by God in the beginning. And the angels who dwell there in that realm are not eternal, but were created by God in the beginning. And so, brothers and sisters, yes, it is true that the same word, heavens, is used in verses 6 through 8 and also in verses 14 through 19 to describe the heavenly realm that is a part of this world, the place where the sun, moon, and stars reside. But if we follow the progression of the passage, it becomes exceedingly clear that the word is being used to refer to to two different things, just as we use it in that way in the English language as well. We use the word heavens to refer to the stars in the sky, and we also use the word heaven to refer to that place where the glory of God does dwell, where the saints who have departed from this earth do now reside in the presence of God, waiting for the consummation of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice the progression here. In verse 2, all attention moves away from what is in verse 1 called heavens to what is called earth. The text says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The attention is upon the earthly realm that was mentioned in verse 1. And then in verses 3 and following, uh, we have a description of the forming of the earthly realm into a space in which man can dwell. And do you see that the heavens of verses 6 through 8 and 14 through 19 are a part of this earthly realm? They're a part of this earthly realm. The heavens that we can see with our eyes are a part of the realm that is in verse 1 called earth. They are a part of the world in which we live. They are a part of the universe. But the heavens of verse 1 refer to the heavens that are invisible to us, though they be always right before us. Uh, That this is the proper interpretation of Genesis 1.1 is confirmed by the way that other scripture texts speak of creation, most notably Colossians 1.15-16. You'll need to listen very carefully to this text. Paul, speaking of Christ, who is the eternal word of God come in the flesh, says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Do you hear the phrase? Where is that phrase coming from? It's coming from Genesis 1.1. And we're about to receive Paul's interpretation of what that phrase means. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Did you hear Paul's interpretation of Genesis 1.1? This is the divinely inspired interpretation of Genesis 1.1. Heavens and earth, Genesis 1.1, refer to things invisible and visible. In other words, the earthly realm and the heavenly spiritual realm. When Paul interprets the phrase heavens and the earth of Genesis 1-1, he says that they refer to things visible and invisible. The earth is that which is visible, including the stars of the sky, and the heavens of 1-1 refer to that part of God's creation that is invisible to us, that realm where the glory of God is manifest before His angels and those saints who stand before Him, not in body, but in soul, do reside even now. You see why this is important to sort out, Genesis 1-1? As we progress through the pages of Holy Scripture, we'll find that these two realms are often referenced. 
right? The heavenly realm and the earthly realm. Often the heavenly realm is invisible to us. That is the norm. We cannot see it. But from time to time, the men of God of old were given a glimpse of it. Angels did appear to men. Isaiah saw something of the glory of the Lord fill that heavenly temple, so on and so forth. Sometimes the heavenly realm is made known, but often it is invisible to us. God created both realms through the eternal Son of God. In John 1, 1, uh, He is called the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so this truth established in Genesis 1.1, that in the beginning God created two realms, the heavenly and the earthly realm, is reiterated again in 2.1 of Genesis, which says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. It is interesting that the word hosts here can refer either to the starry hosts, the moon, the stars, the sun, but they, the word can also refer to the hosts, that is the angels who dwell in heaven. And this truth is then carried through the rest of Scripture until Christ did say at His first coming, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. What did He mean? That I have authority over the stars in the sky and over the, the earth, this ball upon which we live? No, He meant that all authority has been given to me in the heavenly realm And in the earthly realm, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down with that authority. Satan was cast from that place in that moment. He was bound and confined to this earthly realm. Isn't it good for us to study Genesis 1-1 after considering the book of Revelation for so long? Uh, We saw it fully developed, these things, in the book of Revelation. But here, we're considering things in their seed form, in their foundational and seed form. Indeed, all of the scriptures do hang together. In the end, when Christ returns and makes all things new, we know that this heavenly and realm and the earthly realm will become one, and we do look forward to this day. How might we apply these truths? I have three brief suggestions for application. One, know that this God... The one true God, creator of heaven and earth, is to be worshipped and served by us, for He is our Maker. All men do owe worship to God because He is their Maker. He is their Creator. None is exempt, and those who refuse to worship God are at a great debt to Him. He is owed worship because He is our Creator. How much more so now that He is also our Redeemer. He has provided redemption through us, uh, for us through the person of Jesus the Christ. So let us worship Him. Let us put ourselves in, in proper place. Let us stop making ourselves the center of the universe, acting as if everything is about us. But let us live day by day for the glory of God. Let us worship Him on the Lord's day as He has called us to, but with the whole of our lives. Let us live our lives as an act of worship and service before Him. Two, We must truly believe that God is sovereign over all creation. Notice that there is no hint of struggle in the creation account. This is very significant. It's not as if there were two warring forces, the forces of good and evil in the beginning. And here we are, the product of that. No, but there was only God and everything that is was brought into existence by Him, by the word of His power, through the second person of the Trinity. 
eternal word of God. How many Christians, though, live today as if there is some great struggle that is taking place about us, and who knows how it will turn out, you know? Is there a great struggle taking place about us? Yes, there is. Why? Genesis 3, we'll get there someday. But... But was God weak in the beginning? Was He overthrown somehow? Was, was He intruded upon and pushed around? No. Whatever has happened in all of eternity has happened because it is His will. He has either actively uh, decreed that it would happen or He has permitted that it would according to His sovereign good pleasure. Our Lord is sovereign. Our Lord is sovereign over all creation. He is God most high. There is none like Him. There is none who compares to him. Everything else that exists in the heavenly realm and in the earthly realm is creation. He alone is creator. He is to be trusted. We can depend upon him. He is plenty strong to bring about his purposes and to act for our good as he is determined to in Christ Jesus. Three, we must be mindful that there is a realm that exists beyond our sense perception. There is a realm where the glory of God is manifest um, in a most pronounced way. Isn't it interesting that that realm also was not eternal, but was brought into, into existence so that God could display His glory there? But it is a realm that is real, that is true. Christ is there. The angels are there. The souls of the departed are there. Those who are in Christ are there even now. And there is a spiritual realm also, forces of evil, they are there uh, we know that the fall of Satan did take place. He appears in the garden pretty soon. And he did bring about much destruction. There is a, a spiritual realm, and we must uh, be mindful of it. Never should we grow preoccupied with it and obsessed with it and overly curious. But we must remember that there is a spiritual battle that rages about us continuously. We must seek to trust God and to live for His glory always. We must beware that we do not fall into the temptation of the evil one as our first parents did. Uh, brothers and sisters, I hope you're able to see how foundational these things are and why it is important for us to take them slowly and carefully. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What an important principle here. May we build upon it in the weeks to come. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we confess to you that oftentimes our thoughts of you are far too low. And our thoughts concerning ourselves are often far too high. I do pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ and myself included that uh, we would gain a better perspective of you, that we would learn to stand in awe of you, uh, that we would come to you with reverence, that we would bow before you and serve you as you so deserve. Help us in these things, Lord. And as I prayed earlier during the class before the service, I'll pray it now, Lord. I pray that on the one hand, uh, we would see you as being distant and distinct and different from us, transcendent, solitary, Lord, but also that we would see you as Father. For you, God Almighty, did determine from the beginning of time to enter into covenant with man. Uh, we thank you for this, Lord. You, you, are, you are kind to us, your creatures. You have been gracious to us since the fall. We did not deserve this, Lord, but you did enter into a covenant of grace, and we give you thanks, Lord. We thank you that you are merciful to us and that we can know you truly. We thank you that we are invited to come to you, God Almighty, who created heavens and earth. We're invited to call you Father. What a gift. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all of God's people say, Amen.